Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. There's at least one thing that J.F. and I have in common with the Beatles. We'd love to turn you on. And by turn you on, I don't mean get you high or sex you up. That would be a different kind of show. No, we're more about freshening up your thoughts, or even, on a good day, changing consciousness. Now, changing thoughts and changing consciousness are two different things. I can change my mind about whether I'll make chicken or hot dogs for dinner. That would be a change in my thoughts. A change in consciousness would be a change in the faculty by which such thoughts rise to the surface. I could be struck with compassion for animals subjected to the cruelties of factory farming, suddenly find myself revolted by the idea of eating flesh, and never even consider eating meat again. The movement from pondering which meat to cook to pondering whether to cook meat at all is the movement from the foreground to the background. The 60s counterculture was, above all, a mass-scale operation to perform this shift from foreground to background, from thoughts to consciousness, from changing your mind to blowing your mind. As we discussed in episode 71, one of the great 60s gurus, Marshall McLuhan, was a philosopher of the background, asking us to shift our gaze from the contents of media, the message, to the medium itself, from considering Gilligan's Island to considering the fact that in the 60s, almost every American home was equipped with a machine that would allow an entire people to watch Gilligan's Island. So when John Lennon sings I'd Love to Turn You On in A Day in the Life, the final track of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, he doesn't necessarily mean he wants you to drop acid, though that's what the BBC thought it meant. In our show today, J.F. and I think of it as an invitation to take a trip from the foreground to the background, an invitation we also extend to you, dear listener. In what follows, we consider how Sgt. Pepper is, on multiple levels, a device for the transformation of consciousness, not least in the way this album insistently returns our attention to its albumness. It does more than that, though. It reframes the Beatles as something more than just John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a magical working that retrocausally transforms the Beatles into their own background— Not just a band swept along in the transformation of consciousness, but the transformation itself. If you really want to blow your mind, though, the drug of choice for the new counterculture is the Weird Studies Patreon. We're writing up our best and freshest thoughts for our $3 and $6 patrons, and for the $6 tier, we're creating a whole other show, released on our off weeks, that has a looser and more informal vibe than the flagship show. Along with the Weird Studies Discord and subreddit, our Patreon is the hub of a vibrant online community that picks up on the ideas we play with on the show and takes them in new directions. And these, in turn, feed back into the show. We got a whole little counterculture right here. Join us. Get hip. Thanks, and on with the show. 
right, today's going to be interesting. I'm very easily distracted, being distracted by my tea. Now I don't even remember what I was talking about just a second ago. Um, well, why don't you tell us what we're doing today? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which if you've looked at your podcast app, you already know that. But right. <laughs> I'm going to just tell you again, like you don't already know. As if we just didn't say it in the intro as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So why are we doing it? And maybe is the question to ask, because I was, you know, I did some research and was looking around at things people have said about this album. And one of the things that people say about this album is it's the most famous album of all time. You know, one of those, like, put it in a capsule for future alien civilizations to discover what it was to be a human being on Earth and the 20th century, you'd put Sgt. Pepper's in there. Which I find that very strange when you look at the track list. Well, that's actually yeah. where I wanted to start yeah. is like that on the one hand, it is a super mega fucking famous album. But then at the same time, there must be a reason we're talking about it. There must be a reason it is on a show called Weird Studies, where we talk about all kinds of esoteric strangeness. Why are we talking about such a normie piece of culture? That's the perfect serve, Phil, because I found some really crazy shit thinking well, about this album. let's see you spank that back over the net. Well, first of all, I just want to, just what I was just saying there is that strangely, the, I, the album is probably one of the most iconic. It's up there with like Pink Floyd, The Wall, and just the cover. I'm just talking about the, the sight of the album itself. Right. It's, it's so ingrained in the pop culture history, 19th, 20th century. You're right. If you were to write a book called, you know, 20th century pop culture, you could do worse than put some intimation of that cover on on, on your book. Like, it, yeah. it's just it's just so... And yet, the track listing... So one thing that I've noticed I said to more than one person when I was talking about the fact that we were doing this is I kept talking about Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, neither of which appears on the album. Um, right. Even though those songs were recorded during those sessions and were supposed to be on the album, but EMI kind of like forced the Beatles to release a single ahead of time. And, and those are the two songs they put on the, on the single so that the songs don't appear on the album. And I read yesterday that George Martin thought that was the worst mistake the Beatles ever made was the omission of those two songs on the album, which I agree would have completed, I think, the strange... Um, zone that is Sgt. Pepper. I, I, I really strongly feel like those two songs are part of that world, which they actually are because they were recorded around the same time. In fact, Strawberry Fields right. was recorded first to set the tone for the whole session. So uh, point being that the track list of Sgt. Pepper doesn't think, well, it has a day in the life, which is a song, an iconic Beatles song. And it has, of course, the Sgt. Pepper song. But a lot of the songs aren't songs that, that you, you kind of need to be a Beatles fan to know these songs. Lovely Rita, uh, Within You, Without You. I, I, without fixing you, a with, Hole. Fixing a Hole. These are amazing songs, but they're not, you know. They're you know, not, it's not I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's not like the big hits. Yeah, none of them. And yet I think that one of the reasons why it became so iconic was because it represented such a palpable seismic shift in what the Beatles were. And that's, I think, what makes this album weird is that I think this album is literally a magical operation mm. conducted by the Beatles for their own survival, for the survival of the band and for their 
maybe even their individual survival, because the context of the creation of this album is really important, I think. And I was just talking yesterday to a friend from Australia, Andrew Antonio, who's a an amazing painter, a surrealist-ish painter who I encourage anyone to look at his work. He has a website, Andrew Antonio, A-N-T-O-N-I-O-U. He was, he's 70. So he was telling me that he was 16 when this album came out. And he said it was what blew the doors right open for him. It was the cover, the figures on the cover and finding out who these people were, what they'd written. It opened up all these pathways. It basically showed him that pop music was connected to literature and psychology and philosophy and the history of art. And it was all, uh, that album brought it all together for him, made him just was that discovery for him. Try not to put words in his mouth, but I got the impression that, yeah, it was pretty apocal for him. And I'm sure that he wasn't alone in feeling that way when this album dropped. Um, Oh, not at all. Like, there's a thing that's been commented on about how, certainly in the United States, probably elsewhere, ordinary radio broadcasts were basically suspended for several days. It's been said that in the Middle Ages, a squirrel could run from John O'Groats to Land's End. So from one end of the British, uh, the I don't know. Mainland? British mainland, I guess. Like the big island. Yeah. That a squirrel could run from one end to the other without breaking cover. Right. That's how thickly forested it was. So like at any point along that trip, you would be covered by trees. And something similar happened when Sgt. Pepper was released in the summer of 1967, that if you drove, I think it might have been Grail Marcus who said, if you set off from the East Coast and drove all the way to the West Coast during the days immediately after that album's release, you could easily never be outside of a radio broadcast of Sgt. Pepper. Right. You could listen to Sgt. Pepper on the radio without cease for the three or four days it would take you to cross the continent. Wow. And it's that sense of it being a pop culture release phenomenon on a scale almost unimaginable. Right. I like it's just impossible for me to imagine any cultural object having that kind of effect. You know, Hollywood has tried to create events of that sort. You compare it, I guess, to Star Wars, the release of Star Wars. But the difference is that Star Wars, you actually have to go see it, whereas Sgt. Pepper was playing in stores and in cars and in, you know, it was just, you couldn't get away from it, which is one of the things that made the Beatles so subversive was the fact that the parents couldn't get away from it either. You know, (laughs) the old squares that, that hated the Beatles were sentenced to listening to it everywhere they went, just like everybody else. So that's the thing about you. You've often mentioned that music is, um, ambient, I guess. It's, it, we're immersed in it. You can't get away from it. You can't look away from music, you know? So the Beatles phenomenon, and I, I guess that takes us into what led to this album, was something inescapable at that time. You know, it's not for nothing that John Lennon compared the Beatles to Jesus. He wasn't even saying it. I don't think he was saying it as a kind of, in a kind of show-offy, arrogant way. He was just observing I mean, the Beatles was an egregore they created. They were as uh, subjected to it as anybody else, right? Absolutely. And so he was just observing, it's like, this is crazy. Because this album was written, recorded right after they decided to stop touring, after they realized that 
their concerts had become what John called bloody tribal rites. They weren't uh, concerts anymore. People couldn't even hear the music. And so they decided to stop touring. And then they, this album was the, the result of that decision. Because the Beatles had become so big that it was devouring everything, including the members of the band. Yeah, that's yeah. right. To Brian Epstein's delight. And a weird echo, this is actually a little bit like what happened to Glenn Gould. And we talked about this at length in the episode we did on the prospects of recording. Gould, for somewhat different reasons, gave up performing at about the same time. Right. 1964 for Gould. And that was the height of Beatlemania. Right around the same time, the Beatles were just touring incessantly. And by the end of 66, they just fucking had it. You know, there was the bigger than Jesus thing. There was Amelia Marcos sending her goons out to intimidate them. There were all kinds of bullshit things Death that happened. Death threats from Japan. Yeah. And they were fucking tired of it. As you say, it was like their own fame was eating them. For Gould, it was a little bit more personal, internal, psychological that he just never enjoyed performing. And he felt that he was being torn to pieces by having to tour. But Gould wrote prospects of recording when he was right at the beginning of his post-concertizing career, something that nobody had done before. And I can't think of a single major classical musician who's done the same thing, just completely yeah. retire from performance and spend the rest of your life creating, but only through technological mediation. In Gould's case, recording television shows and albums. Yeah. Pierre-Yves on the verge of making that decision. From our discussions, it seems like he's realized that because he, he has a home studio now and he's like, this is the best. I don't ever want to perform again. Yeah. But, uh, but he has, doesn't have a – he has to put bread on the table. So anyways, mm. go on. But yeah, so Gould, when he's sort of fresh out of that life, was thinking about like, okay, so what are the prospects of recording? Hence the name of his little essay. And he wants to make the argument that recordings will obsolesce live performance, which turned out not to be right. But he made a lot of interesting comments about how the album, a recorded album, could be a self-standing work of art and not merely a means to an end, like a snapshot of a performance for those unfortunate enough not to be able to make it in person, or something like a keepsake or a memento, like you go to Niagara Falls and you buy a little snow globe of Niagara Falls as a way of remembering it. And that's very much how people thought of albums before the mid-1960s. Mm -hmm. And the idea that an album could be its own thing, that an album could be an artwork, but a new kind of artwork that would preserve all of the nuances of you know, the performer's inflection, their musical inflection, the style and attack and tempo and so on of a performance. A recording can hold on to all of those things. The artwork that an album represents is a tissue of those things, sort of auditory moments that are actually not transcribable, not notatable at all. And it's not just the performative nuances, it's also things like, you know, sonic placement. This is the time in the mid-1960s when Gould and the Beatles are retiring from public performance and beginning to feel out the possibilities of the recorded medium as a standalone way of making an artistic statement. Right. You know, what they're realizing is like, okay, in stereo recording, all of a sudden you can place sonic objects in a 360 degree field 
That is to say, you know, when you've got your headphones on, you can have very precise auditory locations for all the different things that happen in stereo space. And so that becomes an aspect of the artwork that is an album. An album becomes a way of creating quasi-spatial, even sculptural effects in music. They had already started heading in that direction. And I mean, that partially explains why they were so well, sick yeah, of touring. Well, yeah, like in Revolver. With Revolver, right. And I read that they hardly performed anything from Revolver live. Because, yeah. I mean, they recorded it in such a way that you couldn't reproduce it live. You would have had to create new versions of the songs. You know, doubling your vocal track is something that you can do on an album, but you can't do yeah. live. You know, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So, so, but you, what you're saying is that this was part of a shift. Yes. So that the recording can become in itself a kind of performance. Yes. Um, and in the terms of the aesthetic philosopher Nelson Goodman, mm -hmm. I think it was Goodman who made this distinction. A recording is an autographic art form. It's something like a painting. Right. Like that. It matters that it's this. Yeah, it's got it's got hexaity. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. An allographic artwork would be something like a novel, which it doesn't matter if I've got this copy of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Mysteries or whatever the fuck it's called. I, I can't remember the names <laughs> of those books. Mysteries. Chamber of Mysteries. I don't think that's right. No, uh, but it's, that's, that was the sixth <laughs> book she hasn't read. She hasn't written yet. Yeah. Yeah, um, but like it doesn't matter if you have this copy of a book or that copy of a book, like, or this edition or that edition, the letters are going to line up on the page in such a way as to instantiate the artwork. But an autographic artwork is, it's not that it isn't reproducible, it's that the contingencies of its making are an essential part of what it is. Yeah, okay, so in other words, let me try to understand this. Novels would be autographic. Now, hypothetically speaking, if every novel was maybe a Xerox of the handwriting of the author and of their, no, is that what you're saying? That that yeah. the the performance. If you compare recording an album to physically writing a novel, then the manuscript might be autographic. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm trying to get yeah, the conceptual the distinction. It has to do with the philosopher's question or a question that analytic aesthetic philosophers like to ask is what is the instance of a work? A true instance of the work as opposed to uh, a forgery or, or an arrangement of the work or, or something. Right. So what counts as a authentic instance of a novel? You were, we were in the extra that we recorded, we were talking about Ulebeck's yeah. newest Serotonin. Uh, novel serotonin read so it. yeah so uh which i haven't but i'll I, I read it. it i'm talking <laughs> to you <laughs> <laughs> that's right you you <laughs> asshole uh so like my copy of it is as much an authentic instance of the work as your copy of it yes um, but isn't that true for sergeant pepper well i'm i'm sorry working around to it a painting is like you can have a reproduction of a painting, but you're not going to pay millions and millions of dollars for a postcard of the Mona Lisa, right? There's only one Mona Lisa. It's yeah. an autographic work of art. Is it matter? The contingencies of its making are important to it. Yes, uh, th it goes into the definition of what it is in itself. That's what I meant by the handwriting, like if you, the manuscript as opposed to the. Well, okay. So if we're thinking about music. 
Yeah. Let's talk about sheet music. Sheet music is allographic in the same way that a novel is, right? Oh, I see. So like a score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is an authentic instance of the work. But then again, so is a performance. And this is where it gets tricky. Like a performance of a musical composition, if we are holding to the idea that the artwork has to be one thing or the other, that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is an allographic artwork, then you have to decide, sort of forces you decide, that the score or any authorized instance of the score is the work. And that a performance is a performance of the work, but it's not an instance of the work itself. These are the kinds of philosophical wrangles Ooh. that analytic philosophers get into. Right. But the thing is that the kind of Copernican shift that you have to make to understand rock, if you're coming to it, especially from like a classical music background, and particularly the rock of the mid 60s going forward, you know, art like Sgt. Pepper's, is that you have to understand that a performance can be an artwork in itself, an autographic artwork, like hearing Glenn Gould performing Bach's Goldberg Variations. It matters that it's Gould and not Alfred Brendel or some other pianist playing the Goldberg Variations, right? Right. So the instance isn't Bach's piece, but Gould performing Bach's piece. Right. Yeah. And this is moving us away from the idea of recording as an instance of a type as a as an instantiation of a work a representation, and thinking of the right. yeah a representation and thinking of it as the thing in itself great and maybe using the terms allographic and autographic sort of confuses the issue a little bit because uh well it's precise autographic means self-writing it's writing itself yeah. in the moment it's there the full artwork right. the in, it is the artwork in itself that you're hearing right yeah and so here's a you know a thought experiment an album that belongs to that entire universe of pop music that's unimaginable without the existence of Sgt. Pepper's. Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy by Brian Eno. Yeah. That's a album that is made in the studio in much the same way that Sgt. Pepper showed everybody how to do it. How you construct an album root and branch within the studio. It's conceived in the studio. You don't write a bunch of songs even necessarily and then go and record them. You, the studio itself becomes the means by which the song comes into being. Okay, so Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy is such an album. There's a, somebody told me about this years and years ago when I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, that apparently there was a Bay Area band that had, I think it was a Bay Area band, that had specialized in playing Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy live. They had learned the entire album and they had managed to reproduce its sonic effects kind of perfectly or close enough to perfect that, they, you know, that this is kind of their thing. They would perform a live version of the album that is auditorily indistinguishable from the original. At least that's the idea. Mm -hmm. Now, if we were asking Goodman's question, the analytic philosopher's question, what is the authentic instance of the work of art? We would say that Brian Eno's album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, is, but not the cover. 
even if the cover is absolutely perfect in every respect. It is a representation of, right, I yes. get it. And that, I, I, tribute bands is a great way of thinking about this. Even if you think about those that famous musical box, you know, that Genesis tribute band, which, if I'm not mistaken, their live shows are reproducing the album versions of the songs perfectly mm-hmm. and not the live versions of the songs by Genesis. I'm not sure about that, but I have a feeling that the the magic comes from the fact that you might as well be listening to the record when you listen to this tribute band. And yeah. so you can see how that's allographic. It's intentionally allographic. It's explicitly and innately allographic. It's intended that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I get the distinction. It's really interesting. And so I'm going on at length about this and using perhaps a slightly cumbersome philosophical distinction, trying to get at something that I think is absolutely essential to understanding what's going on in Sgt. Pepper's. That Sgt. Pepper is a very McLuhan-ish album. Hmm. It's an album that's asking you to move from the foreground to the background. It's asking you to move from the message to the medium. It doesn't say that the message is unimportant, but on every level, this is an album that's asking you to keep in your mind while you're listening to it. This is an album. Yeah, it, it's a record. You could put it in uh, Clement Greenberg's terms too by saying that with this album and a few others at the time, the record finds its medium specificity in a way, like uh, that the album becomes a, not so much a representation of a live performance anymore, but rather. A work in itself, which is how exactly. you started all this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Something that even if it could exist outside of a studio, as in my example of the cover band doing Taking Tiger Mountain, yeah. nevertheless, what the work is in itself is something made by this like unique autographic process in the studio and then reproduced ad infinitum. The fact that, you know, there are bazillions of copies of Sgt. Pepper floating around the world might make us get a little confused on the point and think that it's not autographic in the same way that the Mona Lisa is, but it's autographic in this very important sense that like, it's about the recording as a bounded whole, as a unique autographic production. That's kind of brilliant. And it's the ultimate send up of Benjamin, because what it does is it, the, the, the singularity or aura of the work of art suddenly incorporates its reproducibility. Yes, such that the, exactly. re- the reproducibility becomes part of the aura, which right. finally settles, I think, the unsettled questions we raised in our uh, Duchamp episode, was it? Uh, where we talked about Benjamin. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, yeah. So there we go. That's case closed on that one. Um, well, and if you want an example of it, it just think of the outspiral noise. Do you know what I'm talking about? That little burst of gibberish at the at very the end? end? Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. Course. Now, if you listen to it, on Spotify or CD or any medium other than a 33 and a third RPM record, then you're going to kind of miss the medium specificity of that gesture. For those of you who've never played a record, a record has an in-spiral and an out-spiral groove. The in-spiral groove, you put the needle down and the needle will pop into that groove and that groove leads the needle into the first track. And then at that point, you don't need to do anything. The needle will just keep riding the spiral groove until the end of that side of the record, at which point, if you have an automatic changer on your record player, it'll detect the sudden movement of your tone arm. I think this is how that works. And will lift 
the tone arm, the thing that has the needle in it, and put it back to its resting position. Yeah. So that's there's this little out spiral groove that allows that to happen. Okay. And the Beatles had an idea of like, nobody ever puts information in that groove. It exists only as a, a means of giving the needle something to do when the record is over. Either if you've got an automatic shut off, it'll move the tone arm back, or the tone arm will just keep cycling through that same locked groove again and again and again ad infinitum until you turn the machine off yourself. And the Beatles were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we took just a little bit of you know, we, uh, a computer person would say information, just something, a little bit of something. And as it is, it's gibberish. So it's not like a song or something. But what if we just took something and we put it in that locked groove? And what that means is, you know, imagine it's 1967 and you've just excitedly returned home with a copy of Sgt. Pepper and you play the first side and that's awesome and you flip it and you play the second side and it comes to the end and you've just heard Day in the Life and you're sitting there, I have to assume, in a beanbag chair or something, with your mind duly blown by what you've heard. And then you suddenly hear this little squirt of weird, unplaceable noise. I, I don't know if anybody even knows what it is. Some kind of studio chatter. Um, Isn't it reversible? Isn't it like, um, you know, um, backwards? Yeah, I don't know. I've heard that it I don't was. know. But yeah. in any event, the point is, what you're do what's happening is you're sitting there, you're listening, and suddenly you hear... And let's say your record player is kind of a primitive one that doesn't have the automatic tone arm return thing. All of a sudden you have this little burst of weird noise and it just repeats and repeats and repeats. And you realize it's from the tone arm just bumping back to the beginning of that lock groove. And it will continue until you get up and move the tone arm. Right. And in that moment, you are taken out of the candy colored fantasy land that you've inhabited for the past 40 minutes and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm playing a record. There's this 12-inch plastic disc rotating that I need to remove a needle from. Medium specificity, and, yeah. <laughs> and you are thrown away from, like, the content, the message of the album back to the medium, the, that yeah, it's a yeah. record. That's fantastic. And you, can think of, and you can think about this playing out on multiple levels, the famous album cover, the packaging, a uh, whole bunch of things. Uh, the... They've turned the out spiral from a sign to a symbol. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's 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 really amazing.
talk about the inception or the conception of the album again, going back to that. And uh, I just want to start with mentioning that, of course, as many will know, Sgt. Pepper is at the heart of the conspiracy theories concerning the death of Paul McCartney, right? Right. Um, so there are people out there who believe that the figure, the mustachioed figure on the cover of the album is not actually really Paul McCartney, but some imposter. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's a good lead-in to what I'd like to say. And I hope I won't just monopolize, but I can just come back to it and eventually I'll have said it through the discussion. But there's something scandalous, I think, in the fact that Paul sports a mustache on that cover. Because the mustache is a very strange thing. Like The mustache is kind of like a rift in the man's face. It's the minimal adornment you can add to your face to produce a kind of total change. And I've always been really impressed by men who sport a mustache because whenever I've shaved my beard and left the mustache, I look like such a different person that I can't bear to like walk out of the bathroom before I shave it. It's such a strangely drastic change, which is why I know we what get you the, mean. the trope of the fake mustache, you know, like if you don't, you know, like yeah. old detective films, you put on a fake mustache and you look totally different. And it's true that men have this bizarre power to completely transform their face with just a tiny little alteration. There's that movie, La Moustache. Have you heard of this French film from 2005? Emmanuel Carrère film that, where it's about a guy who, uh, he's uh, like this Parisian dude who's had a mustache forever and he tells his wife one morning, I'm going to shave my mustache. And she's like, okay. And he shaves it. And then when she comes home later, he presents himself without the mustache and she doesn't comment and then he, he's kind of feeling like what the hell she didn't and then they go to a party and no one's reacting to the fact that he has he's always had this mustache and he doesn't have it anymore and then when he brings it up with his wife she's like you've never had a mustache and that's kind of the beginning of the film <laughs> um so but the mustache is such a strange thing like uh, and, and the fact that paul has one because the thing is that in august 66 they did that famous infamous Candlestick Park show where nobody could hear a thing. And that was, I think that was their last live show or one of their last live shows. And they decided they wouldn't tour again. And then they took a hiatus a break and then uh, they all went their separate ways. So that's when famously George went to India to study, I think, with Ravi Shankar, was it? Study the sitar. And then uh, John Lennon did How I Won the War and Ringo, I don't know what he did. And uh, Paul went on a road trip in France sporting a fake mustache so that he wouldn't be recognized. And so he kept the mustache. He actually has a real mustache on the cover, intentionally or not, as a kind of reference to this undercover work he did where he was finally able to live like a normal human again for a little while in France riding around in his expensive car. So the reason I bring that up, because I think the mustache is kind of a key to understanding the transformation that took place. And, you know, at the beginning, I was saying it's a magical operation. I think the Beatles, they were really smart dudes and they were very, they were true artists. They understood that they couldn't just change their band. Like they couldn't just change their wardrobe. They were seeing the hippie movement rise. They were seeing all this new stuff coming out. They wanted to be part of it. They wanted to participate in that. 
but I think they intuited that if they just changed their wardrobe and style, they would have come off like Spinal Tap in that sequence in the movie where you see all their different, <laughs> you know, through, well, through the movie, you see all their different phases and how they just kind of like in the, uh, like, uh, sick like their flower power. Yeah. Yeah. Their flower phase. power phase, which obviously they're just aping whatever they think will get them, you know, money and girls like they'll do whatever right. it takes. Uh, <laughs> the Beatles didn't want to make a shift. Uh, that would be as superficial as that. So they knew that their transformation had to transform not just themselves, but the egregore of the Beatles itself. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I interpret the decision, I think it was Paul, to make this new record, which would be in itself, as you've explained, a performance, to make it a performance. Like it's yes. literally the performance of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is now the band they're pretending to be. So they're like yeah. reinv- they're working at the imaginal level. Like yeah. they're, they're performing an imaginal operation to transform what the Beatles was successfully so that the monster they created, that Bacchic Dionysian monster that was this, the giant beetle that was kind of had enslaved them, could be transformed into this new creature which would allow them... That, that would enslave them. That would enslave them again, but differently. <laughs> differently. But they you know, tried. It's, it was, they, they, in fact, if you think about it, they kind of went deeper into like a deeper level of hell in a way. <laughs> but the, the transformation was successful. Um, yes, it, it was. And so um, there's a kind of retrocausal magic too, because I think that even like once... They've they, never had a mustache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, no, I, I, I kind of dig what you're saying. Once they have created this new egregore of the Beatles, that has the Beatles that has always existed. Exactly. And this is, I think this is probably the best example for exploring retrocausality because, because, for example, because, and you can speak to this, Sgt. Pepper is not really a it's a pop album but it's not sticking to the pop style or sound it it incorporates like vaudeville and music halls all kinds of Mm -hmm. weird styles that they're bringing up and to kind of emulate this idea of this edwardian era brass band or something Uh, and so in a way sergeant pepper gives us insight into what was going on before sergeant pepper like i think that once you've how can i explain this that even the music that precedes Sgt. Pepper, you hear it differently once Sgt. Pepper's out. It kind of tells you more about what that music was, which people were missing. Um, mm-hmm. And so it really is a kind of a hyperstitious recreation that changes the past along with the future and the present. Um, yeah. I so- recently rewatched Hard Day's Night, the Richard Lester film from 1964. Yeah. The best Beatles movie, at least for my money. And... It starts off with this terrific chord on a 12-string guitar, George Harrison's famous opening chord for the single Hard Day's Night. Interesting chord because it has kind of bedeviled transcribers trying to spell the chord to say exactly what it is. I suspect by now people have a pretty shrewd idea of how to spell that chord or how exactly Harrison got that particular sound. But the point is that it was really resistant to transcription for a long time. Like any musician should be able to sit down 
and transcribe that chord by ear. But the fact that it was so difficult to do and eluded proper transcription for so long is itself a little kind of a miracle. And like, that's how the film starts in medias res with the Beatles running from a horde of screaming fans. Right. And it's black, it's before the film. And so like, twang, you hear that chord and they start singing the song and headlong we're in the, the middle of this film. All of a sudden, in a rush, the whole film is there. And it's like it's been called into existence by this singularity, this chord right. that in the world, in our world, not the world of the film or the world of the album Hard Day's Night, but in our world emerges as a singularity, as a thing that can't be assimilated. It's a kind of an amazing moment. But my point is, to kind of pivoting off of what you just said, that feeling of a rift or a breach out of which tumbles the new, this new thing, the Beatles, that gesture could only become fully legible after Sergeant Pepper. After Sergeant Pepper, right. And why though? Like mechanically or ritualistically, I don't know, ma magically, how does it happen? Uh, recently, I've been revisiting Deleuze's Cinema 2, the, the second volume of his cinema book, which is uh, a pretty fantastic piece of philosophical writing. I mean, and that's an understatement. I mean, I'm a big Deleuze fan, but this book is really something else. And not only that, I've been following a course because Deleuze's classes, everything he taught from 1980, 1987 is available online. So if you are uh, fluent in French, you can actually follow these classes. And I've been, I've been, um, instead of listening to podcasts or music, I've been listening to this class from 1984, where he very helpfully and and charitably breaks down what in the book is quite difficult and esoteric. He breaks it down for these students in like crystal clear terms and crystal clear because he's, I'm t I want to talk about the, what he calls the time crystal. I think Sergeant Pepper is a perfect example of what he calls a time crystal or crystal image. I think I can explain this quite quickly. You were saying earlier in the in the first segment of this show that with Sgt. Pepper and a few other uh, records, the record becomes a work in itself. It finds its own instantiation as a, as a work. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's super important. And I think that if you look at the specifics of this particular album, the fact that the album is constructed like a performance by this new band that's not the right. Beatles is very important to why Absolutely. the album worked and did what it was supposed to do. Now, in his class on the Time Crystal, Deleuze talks about, uh, well, first of all, his idea of the Time Crystal is uh, something he gets from watching post-war cinema starting with Orson Welles, just before that there actually. He realizes that what, something's happening in post-war films that is very different from the films that existed before the war, Second World War, that is. And he's saying that, and whereas before, all of the images were predicated on mechanical, causal, or what he calls organic chains of causes and effect, action leading to reaction, leading to more action, leading to reaction, suddenly after the war, you have images that stand up on their own. And he calls these the time image, the image mm. that shows you time in its raw, empty mm. form. But then from that, he develops specific types of images. And one is the crystal image. And this is an image that he finds in cinema and also in literature. You get an image where you can see at one and the same time 
the imaginary and the real in a relation of absolute indiscernibility. So you'll find that in the films of Orson Welles, where characters are remembering things, but you don't know if they're remembering, remembering them correctly. So you're seeing the imaginary and the real kind of chase each other, like in a carousel, yeah. such yeah. that you can't tell which is which. It's like what I was saying about celebrity in our most recent yeah, episode. Yeah, well, I put that in my notes too. Yeah, you can bring that in. Yeah, that's okay. Just to finish the point though. Um, so, And he finds it in literature in what he calls crystalline descriptions. And he says a crystalline description in a novel is a description that substitutes itself for the object that it represents. So whereas an organic description, like in Balzac, for example, you'll have a house described. Well, that house may or may not exist in reality, but the text is constructed in such a way as to assume that it exists in reality. It's describing something that actually or not is supposed to exist outside the text. Whereas this new type of literary description, which Deleuze finds in the Nouveau Raman, the novels that were being written in the early 60s in, in France, the description erases the object it represents and takes its place. Much like Sergeant ah, Pepper's, yes, okay. much like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, erases the Beatles and replaces the Beatles with a new band that, as part of the operation, is called Sergeant Pepper's Hearts Club Band. But in actual fact, it's just the Beatles in this totally new form that, at the same time as it creates itself, erases what came before. It That's completely replaces it. So. Yeah, that's what I think is going on. So I was wondering why I was listening to this Deleuze class. I was just kind of obsessed with listening to it. But then, of course, when we decided to do this album, I hadn't thought of that. But then as, as I was listening to it, I realized that this is a perfect example of what Deleuze calls the crystal of time or the time crystal. It's, mm. And it's a magical operation. It's sorcery. His, you know, Deleuze's comparison for how uh, the time crystal instantiates what he calls the powers of the false or like he takes example. He talks about Hamlet. Uh, sorry, Macbeth. You know, I brought this up with my, in my class that I taught recently and how the witches in Macbeth are changing the time, changing time. They're working with time itself. They're predicting, they're, they're feeding Macbeth both falsehoods and truths in order to shift the way things are and to shift the way things have always been. And mm. I think that that's what Sergeant Pepper is. It's a kind of magical operation that allowed the Beatles to not only create themselves anew, but to erase what they had been or translate what they had been into the terms of what they're becoming. That's nice. I yeah. like that. For one thing, this conversation kind of puts on a new ground the age-old question, is this really a concept album or not? Mm. Like one of the things that's very often said about it and was said from early on is that it's the first concept album. Uh, Frank Zappa would got very bitter about that because I suppose Freak Out from yeah. 1966 maybe beat it to the punch. The idea of listing all of your heroes in, in the album materials, also something that happened on Freak Out that they did on Sgt. Pepper. And so I'm not going to argue that it's doing things for the first time, but it's doing it in such a way that you'll actually notice. Right. <laughs> that, that, you know, like Freak Out is known to a small community of people who largely just like to listen to Frank Zappa's music that Sgt. Peppers is listened to by pretty much everybody on the planet. And so 
leaving aside the relatively uninteresting question of historical priority, is it the first concept album? Nevertheless, it's the album that really puts in place, really centers the idea of a concept album. And yet there has all along been a counter argument that it's not really a concept album because like, you know, Tommy is a concept album. Yeah. You know, The, the Lamb Lies Down Dark on Broadway is a, yeah. or 2112, yeah. which is half of a concept album. Those are concept albums insofar as there's an actual definable concept that's sort of narrative that affects the songs that happen on the album. But the thing is that Sgt. Pepper doesn't work that way. All it has is a pair of bookends. A Sergeant framing Pepper's, device. Right. Yeah. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, number one, and then the reprise at the end, and then all the album materials, like the picture of the Beatles wearing those costumes. O occasional applause and stuff in the album, right. too. Yeah. Well, in the... in. The transition to Little Help for My Friends, because that setup is like Billy Shears, the fictional surrogate for Ringo Starr. But basically, that doesn't really change no. the case. It doesn't really change the fact that if this is a concept album, it's the world's simplest concept. Look, it's a band that isn't the Beatles playing the Beatles' new album. Yeah. Uh, it's hardly a concept at all, and it hardly has any effect on the specific tracks and their specific sequencing on the album, with the possible exception of Day in the Life, which is very often interpreted as something outside the frame or even something that breaks the frame, right. which is kind of an interesting thought. But aside from that, it's just like, why is fixing a hole there? Why is Lovely Rita there? Why is She's Leaving Home there? Because those are songs played by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like, that's a really lame concept, right? But the way you've just expressed it kind of changes the calculation a little bit. Because then from that point of view, what that very bare framing device does is it's sort of like a magic circle. It's the act of the magician drawing the triangle oh. of art. Right. In which something is going to manifest. I mean, the magic circle is the thing that protects the magician, but the triangle of art is the thing in which stuff will manifest. <clears throat> then from that point of view, what a magical operation is, is providing the means of manifestation and a time and place of manifestation, which the magician wishes to control. Because if you're not working within a circle and if there's no triangle of art, then you've just got a fucking poltergeist or a demon running rampant. And maybe you should have thought twice about doing that. So yeah. from that point of view, the drawing of the boundary is the signature act, the most important act. It's the thing that makes it a, you know, to put it in James Carse's term, a finite game. Right. You know, it's the mere act of drawing the frame that is one of the biggest innovations of this album. One of the most mind-blowing things, and it plays into what we were talking about before, the shifting from message to medium, from the foreground to the background, it kind of has something to do with that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. In fact, you could argue maybe that it's a percept album, <laughs> because <laughs> what the framing device does is it teaches you how to see, how to hear the, the album, and how to hear what this album means. It's telling you that something has changed and it's uh, occasioning the magic. And, uh, you know, I think that's brilliant. I, I'm all the more convinced now that Sgt. Pepper was literally a kind of magical operation. Okay. So then if that's the case though, 
question becomes, does it matter that these songs are on the album and not some other songs? Does it matter that Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane had to be bartered away as a single and a B-side? I think it does. Yeah. So so yeah. in other words, because somebody could say, OK, very well, this whole thing is an operation to manifest whatever's next. But it could have been anything. It could have manifested different songs. So this album in itself becomes only interesting conceptually. But in terms of its actual songs, like who even gives a shit? I'm oh, not saying yeah. that that's I'm not saying that that's what I think. In fact, I would say I would argue very much against that. But the problem with this line of thought, this style of interpretation is it does what conceptual thinking in art very often does. You've often said that the fetish for concept art in the world of the Venice Biennale or whatever, like the sanctioned high value art world, is that you get the concept and you don't need the art. Right. The aesthetic realization becomes entirely disposable. Uh, and then from that point of view, it would be possible to say like, OK, well, you've established the value of Sgt. Pepper as a kind of uh, a concept, but it says nothing about oh, the actual yeah. music. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And so we have to get into the music because what we've been discussing are um, they're not I wouldn't say peripheral issues. They're central to what the album is, but what the album is is the songs. Um, right. And on that level, my first comment would be that I think it's tragic that Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane aren't on the album because just imagine that album with those two songs, which I think, by the way, uh, for the record, are peak Beatles for me. Those two songs are Paul and John distilled to an essence, Penny Lane being a, a Paul song and Strawberry Fields being a John song. And the way those two songs talk to each other. I think is unbelievably important. And I think that those two songs are landmarks in a geography that's established, constructed in, in Sgt. Pepper. I think that's where they create the world where now, retrocausally, you can situate all the material that came before, a lot of the stuff from Revolver, a lot of the earlier stuff can find a place in this imaginal land or zone, you know, to use our terms, that they create. But that zone was created with Sgt. Pepper. And then, of course, in the zone, you have Strawberry Fields. I've always imagined that Penny Lane, if you just keep walking down it and, it, you know, you leave the town and it becomes a country lane, eventually it leads you to Strawberry Fields, which I know is absurd because Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane are actual places in England that are very far apart. But of course, they become new places in this uh, untimely zone that the Beatles create. But for me, I've always felt I mean, from the time I, I started listening to the Beatles when I was seven years old, and um, from the very beginning, to me, these were songs that took place and spoke of another world uh, in mm. much the same way as Arthur Machen's fiction does. I think the Beatles are participating in the tradition that people like Machen and Blackwood established. Um, mm. They are absolutely chronicling the events of an other world that is weird, uh, that is a weird world. And I think Sgt. Pepper was the occasion where that world kind of bloomed into at least uh, the collective imagination as a place that one could access. And in all the way hmm. down to like Abbey Road, those songs to me, all these songs, all these albums participate or take place in this world. I don't know if you feel the same about the Beatles. This is very, very strong for me. Um, that feeling is kind of a conviction I have. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, just to get us into the content of the album itself, I would 
just say that that thing I was saying earlier about the real and the imaginary chasing each other in the crystal image, you can find instances of that throughout this album in the lyrics and in the music, of course. There's a constant kind of a, a movement in the album where you start with some banality, good morning, it's getting better all the time, you know, just the when I'm 64, these kind of banal platitudes that fly off into dream. Yes, yes, know? yes, yes. And that's absolutely so like the imaginary and the real chasing each other in the in the songs themselves. Oh, that's so true. That's yeah. so true. I've got a couple of examples. One, because the song is actually running through my head. It's on heavy rotation in my head right now, is fixing a hole. Oh, yeah. Where it starts off and it sounds like a Paul song and it's Paul singing. And it's got that galump thing. Yeah sort of loping music hall thing that he was really getting into for this album. And it's just kind of a thing he liked anyway, an ingredient he often found himself seasoning the dish. Uh, with which he often found himself seasoning the dish. It's important to put the preposition in the right place in the sentence <laughs> when you're speaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that important. It's so important. Uh, but anyway... It just it sounds like a Paul song. And he goes, fixing a hole where the rain gets in to stop my mind from wandering where it will go. And when he says where it will go, it doesn't stop the song. It doesn't break the frame of the song. But like his voice goes high and floaty. And if I'm remembering correctly, like they do something cool with the placement of the voice in stereo space. And then the phrase kind of comes down with a bump on the other end of that little kind of vocal curlicue that spirals off into dreamland. Yeah. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it And it's just, there are these moments where it spirals off into dreamland. And then the really, really epic example of that is in Day in the Life. Everybody remembers John's stuff. But yeah. Paul's verse in the middle is really important. Oh, God. It's, it's because, to me, yeah. And, yeah, sorry. And people are like, oh, yeah, but it's so banal. It's like, yeah, you know, like got out of bed and like almost missed my bus and blah, blah, blah. And then I went to work and people are having a conversation. And then I fell into a dream and the music goes yeah, sideways. It's soaring. Yeah. I'm way upstairs and had a smoke. And somebody spoke and I went into a dream. The vocal line there is so beautiful and the, the orchestration it thickens up. The whole landscape of the song changes in that moment. It's such an epic kind of going into dreams moment. It's the most conspicuous example of something that happens all over the place in this album. Yeah, it's just super obvious at that point, but it's happening all the time in the album. And it's happening in the very concept of the album. So it's like just to bring the concept into the affect here. So it's not yeah. just con the, the Beatles becoming Sgt. Pepper, becoming the Beatles, that shifting, yeah. that, that movement between the real and the imaginary is on the cover. I mean, on the cover, you have the Beatles in their uh, Sgt. Pepper outfits, colorful Sgt. Pepper outfits. And then right to their left, you have 
right to their left, <laughs> just to their left, you have uh, wax figures of the mop top beetles. Yes. So you're seeing this chasing, this carousel of the real and yeah. the imaginary happening right on the cover. And yeah, so it's, it's yeah, yeah. everywhere in the album. And for and Day in the Life, I mean, I've always experienced that middle part where Paul comes in as, um, you know, when I was really, I was watching Lost Highway. I'm always reminded of that. I feel like what happens in the middle of that song is that the narrator of the first part, so John, becomes a person. And in fact, that hmm. that middle part is in itself a kind of dream of the banal. And mm-hmm. then oh, for a I moment, he's saying. just this guy who wakes up. But it's like, because both parts are in the first oh. person. And yet that's a different voice. So I just felt like there's a kind of, um, what do you call it? Psychogenic fugue in the song. Mm. And then he falls back into the dream. But of course you have the real and the imaginary. So you could say that the John part is a man imagining an accident. He's reading the paper and he's imagining. Then there's a shift and all of a sudden he becomes this other person who's living this kind of banal life. And then he shifts back into dream. And it's just, again, this carousel of the dream of the the real and the imaginary. And just for listeners, we're using, or at least I'm using the word real in its usual sense, not in the sense that we sometimes use it on the show, which includes the imaginary. So I can, that could be kind of confusing. Yeah, I mean, the day in, a day in the life is such an amazing tune, and you, you know, that, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, so, I keep. I'm, I'm going to talk over you all day if you let me. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the way you just interpreted a day in the life is so compelling to me. You know, John's voice, that relatively flat, almost affectless. narrator voice. The idea that the middle section of Paul bouncing out of bed and going to work is um, the quote unquote reality of that guy. Yeah. But then he falls into a dream and it's just sort of like, yeah, but which is, but is the reality guy, the dream of the, of the dream guy. And it reminds me of Schwanks's thing about the butterfly where he has a dream that he's a butterfly. And then when he wakes up, he realizes that he's been dreaming and then asks himself, was I Schwanksu dreaming I was a butterfly or am I now really a butterfly dreaming that I am Schwanksu? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with a lot of the really kind of uh, esoteric theories of songs or interpretations of songs, especially esoteric Beatles interpretation, usually leave me cold. I often feel like, yeah, well, that's, you know, it's one way to see it which is fine, but, you know, I don't know why that would compel any particular attention on my part. But this feels like a sturdier interpretation, because if there's anything I feel like you could say that the content of Sgt. Pepper's is about, it's consciousness. And like, maybe I'm being uh, influenced by Ian MacDonald. I think it was Ian MacDonald who wrote a wonderful book called Revolution in the Head, which is very record specific. A lot of crunchy musical detail for people who want to know how these records are actually made and that it's a Mellotron being played and right. losing this guy with diamonds or whatever. But he has a really interesting point. He's like, you know, the line, I want to turn you on, like take that seriously that what they want is it isn't about drugs even or necessarily. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. It's about consciousness. It's about 
getting your mind away from the foreground and to the background, away from just the contents of existence to like that which frames, embraces, instantiates all the contents of existence. And then from that point of view, to me, what's the thing running through all the songs of Sgt. Pepper's? They're different contents of existence. This is my argument for why actually it's a good thing that Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane are not in the album. Because okay. those are tracks of personal experience. They relate to places that John and Paul knew growing up. And the original idea of what they wanted to do after Revolver and after touring was an album that would be, if not a concept album, at least loosely bound up by the Beatles remembering, reminiscing about places of their childhood. And the only two songs that really went in that direction were Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. But then after those two tracks came out as a single, they kind of forgot about that concept and started doing something much more protean, much harder to pin down, much more shape-shifty. So my idea is like, you know, you have those things in, that's contents of experience, that's something very specific and something that would center the album around some particular site or center of experience. Whereas the songs we actually get on Sgt. Pepper, the thing they have in common is that they have nothing in common, that they're just different slices of experience, different kind of tapestries or, or sound landscapes that unfold in front of our ears until the end, which gets us back into some kind of domain of personal experience. But even there, we, you know, like famously, it's about things that John was reading about in the paper, including the suicide of Tara Brown, a socialite friend of theirs who got high and killed himself in his car. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, 100%. But I would argue that what Paul and John do with Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane in those two songs is precisely the same operation, where places they knew as children or places that they knew in reality are, um, I don't know what the word is, imaginalized or transformed into features of another world. In fact, it, there's a story by Arthur Machen, which is strangely, it's titled A Fragment of Life as opposed to A Day in the Life, mm. uh, which is reads like a kind of Beatles album in a weird way or a Beatles song. It's about this, uh, you know, middle-class couple in uh, early 20th century, I believe, or late 19th century London or in a suburb of London. And they share this other world that they talk about. It's a beautiful story. It's such a beautiful story. It's my favorite Arthur Machen story. It's kind of it's kind of weird because it, it, it it's slow. It's a slow read, but it's so worth it. And to me, it's doing something the way that Machen in that story is calling the imagination. Everything that the squares and the organic obsessives have told us isn't real, calling it into the real such that we can no longer think of reality of a reality that would exclude the imagination, that that realm of fantasy becomes part and parcel of our world. It, that's exactly what I see in those two songs and in the rest of the album. Mm. Um, and I mean, so, yeah, I guess you could see it one way or the other. Uh, but, you um, know, actually, it's the least important part of what right. I was trying to say. Like, right. you know, yeah, it sucks that those two songs didn't end up in, in the album. It, it would have been better if they had been. But basically, the point that I want to make is that this is an album of pocket dimensions. Right. 
It's just like one pocket dimension after another. And by the end, the idea of like, am I visiting the pocket dimension? Am I dreaming it or is it dreaming me? That kind of confusion of subject position. Long story short, this whole album is a zone. to where I started, which is to comment on how this is an incredibly famous and popular and well-known, even hackneyed piece of art. And why are we talking about it on our show when we try to avoid stuff like that normally? And one of the things that I wanted to say about it is that there's a specificity to Sgt. Pepper, that it is something rather than something else. That is a very surprising thing to find in a piece of truly popular culture, like really, really popular culture. And that is, it's a, an incredibly aestheticist piece of art. Like it is a piece of art that doesn't argue so much for the total autonomy of imagination and the artwork as it just does it. It just instantiates it. Right. And it's all about the total freedom and autonomy of the imagination to go where it will go. Like that thing I was talking about before the break, but this is a, a zone and it's an album of zones. In order for that to be true, like all power to the imagination has to be the watchword. That's a phrase that the Parisian student rebels of 1968 like to spray paint on walls all power to the imagination right it is an album that asserts all power to the imagination and that was maybe a more popular utterance in 1967 than it is in 2021 but listening to it and the degree of open-hearted 
acceptance of what is and the willingness to find beauty in anything and for that beauty to be enough. Right. For that beauty not having to serve some kind of function, it doesn't have to get in line and start marching, it doesn't have to rep anything, it doesn't have to build anybody's brand, and it sure as shit doesn't have to play into somebody's political agenda. Right. That degree of freedom that it models and that it imagines is something that is, to use a very overused word, is subversive. Yeah, exactly. In, in an age now that feels to me that all of the major voices in our culture are about negating exactly that freedom. Yeah. Oh, that's that's and it, that you kind of hit it there because when we talk about art as being apolitical, we don't mean that art exists in a separate realm. It's funny because you just said that all power to the imagination, first of all, was used as a slogan by the 68 revolutionary students. It's funny how, in a sense, this call to the apolitical, to the imagination as, as autonomous, as free of all the machinery of history and politics, the, 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 this assertion of the freedom of the imagination is itself the most subversive claim you can make. Yep. You know, the way I always say it's like the Alps obviously are apolitical, but their political import and significance is incalculable in European history, right? Like it exists in itself for no reason. And that precisely is what makes it subversive. That's precisely what makes it irreducible to anybody's ideology. Mm -hmm. and, and since you're right, that Sgt. Pepper is one of the rare products, let's say, of pop culture that achieves that level of autonomy. You can see that in the way that, for instance, like you have to kind of imagine what the Beatles were going through. They were seeing these new musical styles come up, these new bands coming out of San Francisco and all over the place, these new sounds, and they were inspired by that. How could they not cannibalize, but uh, use this, extract new powers from this movement without coming across as Spinal Tap does when you see them <laughs> shift from phase to phase through time. Somehow they were able to incorporate these new mov movements without sacrificing the singularity of what they were creating themselves, of their own hexaity. And not only did they successfully migrate into this kind of new hippie late 60s world, but they were able to reinvent it and to, to set its tone in a weird way. But that's because I think one of the main ingredients of that and one of the main elements of that success is that they were, in a sense, operating in, in a kind of absolute freedom. They, nobody can actually exist in absolute freedom, but they aspired to it and encouraged them to take risks that they might not otherwise have taken and encouraged them to do things that they might not otherwise have done. And, now, um, I, sh yeah. I feel like I should jump in here and say that when I talk about the autonomy of the imagination or the autonomy of the aesthetic, that doesn't mean that it is in a realm separate from politics. Exactly. What it, That's mean, my point. What it yeah. means is that it can turn into anything. It can turn into politics or it can turn into sex or it can turn into a, a blue door. It can, it can turn into fucking anything, but it is not determined 
by any of the things it could turn into. Right. And exactly. so you could imagine some, you know, like bitter academic Marxist saying like, oh, the very reason that it is so popular with the masses is because it is irresponsibly apolitical. It tells people you can enjoy these candy colored landscapes, these surreal psychedelic landscapes that the Beatles are unfolding for you in the grooves of a record. You can enjoy these without being haunted by the thought of political, social, etc., inequality or injustice. But that that's a kind of a lie, that it's perfuming the turd of modern life. Now, what we need is more political art that more explicitly recommends a revolutionary consciousness to our attention. Needless to say, I don't agree with that, but that would be an argument for why this is so popular. But needless to say, I wouldn't agree. And I'm curious, like, uh, you look like a man who has something he would like to say in response to that. I want to say that taking that line would miss the real, I think, and again, now I, might, I may seem like I'm contradicting myself, but as I said, the Alps have tremendous political import, even though it would be absurd to say that the Alps are political entities, first and foremost. The cover of the album establishes a kind of tribe or lineage or party. Let's call the <laughs> Sgt. Pepper's Heart, uh, Lonely Hearts Club band, which apparently, if you look at the cover, includes all these other people behind the Beatles. It's, it's a big band, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, is kind of almost like a political party. But look at the figures in that party. And they're, they're not all of a kind. They're not all aligned politically. There's all right. kinds of people in there. But it does include people like Aleister Crowley, William Burroughs. Carl um, Heinz Stockhausen. Stock, yeah, Stockhausen. It's making a statement that flowing underneath the surface of what we call the, the sociopolitical landscape, subterranean currents. That assert themselves retroactively in moments like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That suddenly not only is the earlier Beatles material reinvented in that album, but Aleister Crowley, in a sense, finds new affordances. His yeah. work becomes channeled in a new way through the album, merely by being present on the cover. Marilyn Monroe is there. Well, Marilyn Monroe suddenly... Everything about her changes in light of the fact that she's on the cover of this album, which is performing the operation we've been describing in this show. It's calling forth a people. It's like a Paul Cleese claim that, you know, uh, I've got my art. What's missing is my people. And my art is a call to my people. So the truly autonomous, let's say, apolitical and yet deeply political work of art is always calling forth a people that doesn't yet exist. And it's mm -hmm. not just calling that people out of the future or out of the present, calling forth those, the, the listeners who will get it. It's also calling out of the past and a lineage, a, a tribe that by its very existence instantiates a world that does not yet exist. Yeah. Which is a political kind of thing to do, to define a people, but it's defining a people of the imagination and yeah. anybody can join. It's like this album is a call to you. Are you in the Sergeant Pepper party? Which is a kind of a party of the imagination. It's what I can't get over is the audacity to create a work of art of such magnitude, of such impact, global, planetary impact that offers 
such a broad invitation of that sort. It is, from a certain point of view, an enormous political act to ask the world to join this people. Yeah. But without defining it and without defining it's like demands or like a 12 point, yeah, yeah, Yeah. a 12 point program for change or whatever. It's a political act of a very sixties kind. And there haven't been many such acts like that since it is an extraordinarily generous hearted act to the extent that it doesn't feel like politics at all. you, You might tell it's like, I have, I mean, you know, I vote in Canadian elections. I do my political duty, but I'm pretty suspicious of politics as such, partly because it's very difficult to imagine politics as it is actually enacted in the world without the spirit of hatred, without the spirit of division. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, like to define a people, you have to define it against something. And then the the people that you define has to be compared favorably to the people who are outside that you've othered, right? Somehow the Beatles managed to articulate a vision of the Sergeant Pepper Party that doesn't do that. No. And it's a, this is a very late 60s countercultural thing. I mean, to some extent, the Beatles invented this idea. Well, they didn't invent it. Their spiritual antecedent in this is Allen Ginsberg. And mm. it's interesting that Ginsburg interpreted Sergeant Pepper's the album very much in the terms that I'm interpreting it now as a open-hearted embrace of what is, of like anybody could be in this party. And I'm going to use the party also in the Andrew W.K. sense, partying, right. you know, <laughs> a, a meter maid could party with the Beatles. Yeah. Mr. Kite. You know? Mr. Kite can party with the Beatles. You know, the old dude in When I'm 64 can party with the Beatles. You can party with the Beatles. There's only one prerequisite. And that is? It's having a lonely heart. How do you figure? Well, aloneness. You have to be able to extract yourself or transcend the um, collectivizing organic vicissitudes of your time. You have to access the untimely and you can only do that alone. But what happens when you do that, when you take that lonely flight, is that you find yourself in uh, a kind of angelic company that transcends time. Yeah. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>